Do you know who has high hopes for you? Jesus has high hopes for you. We're going to open up the Bibles today to the book of Colossians. Go ahead and start turning there, chapter 1. And as you turn to Colossians 1, we're going to be reading a portion of Paul's letter to a church in Asia Minor in the first century. And in it, he is going to exclaim to them that not only does Paul have high hopes for the church, but that God has high hopes, that Jesus has great hope for the people of that church. And we're going to read today in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 21, how Jesus looks upon us and He is our greatest cheerleader. He is our greatest fan. That He has high hopes for us. Would you please stand with me? as we read from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start back in verse 19 and we'll continue through verse 23. Back in verse 19, which we've already covered, but to give it some context, Colossians 1, 19 to 23. Paul, in his letter to the church, writes these words. For it pleased the Father... That in Him, that is Christ, in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. And by Him, to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now... He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister." Lord, would you open up our eyes now as we read your word. Let your spirit guide our study. Some of this uh, portion of your word is difficult. Others of it is so very encouraging. Lord, let us grasp all of it. And let us be transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Back again in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For it pleased the Father, Paul writes, that in Christ all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. That's the context from which we've come from our, our last message, that God was pleased to bestow upon Jesus the, the great rights and privileges and benefits, all the supremacy to be Lord of heaven and earth. And, to rec- and that, that, that the fullness of God should dwell in Jesus. And that by Jesus, that He would reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How did He do it? By making peace through the blood of His cross. Now that Paul has spoken about this this idea of reconciling, 
reconciliation that Jesus has done, he's going to go on to elaborate, to speak a little bit more about that reconciliation. And in verse 21, he's going to indicate who receives that reconciliation. In verse 22, he's going to indicate what's the purpose of that reconciliation. And by verse 23, he's going to say how those benefits can be maximized. And so let's read again in verses 21 through 23. He says, And you, you Colossians, you Coast Bible Church, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now Christ has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death. Why? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. If indeed... You continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which, all, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, I don't know about you, but for most of us, I would suppose, as we read this portion of God's Word, our eyes are probably most immediately drawn to the, sta- to the word, if... In verse 23, if, and a fast and a superficial reading of this portion of God's word is likely to worry many people. For it appears on the surface that Paul is making all of these glorious statements, that he's making all of these glorious salvation promises and other benefits that are extended unto us, that he's making them utterly contingent upon our continuing in the faith in a way that is grounded, steadfast, unmoved. And so we might begin to wonder. We might even worry a little bit. Is my faith like that? Will I always be steadfast? And if I don't, what then? What are the consequences if I don't meet this condition? as Paul has outlined in verse 23. To be indelibly clear, Paul is giving a warning in verse 23. And that warning begins with that simple word, if. It's a conditional statement. And we mustn't ever minimize a warning passage in the Bible. We mustn't ever whisk it away and ignore it. But still... A hasty reading of this portion of Paul's letter is likely to lead many astray. For if we jump too quickly into verse 23, without first unpacking the preceding verses, and then going to the verses that follow it, we will likely miss the whole point of Paul's warning. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to unpack this warning. To unpack it together. And first we're going to begin... In verse 21, 21 in the early part of 22 reads again, And you, Colossians, you Christians, you Coast Bible Church, you you once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death. The word alienated there, apolatriao in Greek, It means to be a stranger toward. It means to have no connection with. 
He goes on to say that you were enemies. Not only were you strangers from God, you were enemies of God. Enemies in your mind. Dianoia. Enemies in your understanding. In your disposition. In the way you thought. In your attitude. In your intentions. Enemies by your wicked works. By your evil works. By your sinful works. You're strangers of God in the past. You're enemies of God in the past. Your mind, your disposition is against Him. Your works are against Him. You are in sin. You were in sin. That was our former state. That's what we were in the past, Paul notes. Because of our sin, we were alienated. We were enemies of God. But then come two glorious words. Glorious words. The words, yet now. In verse 21. Yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death. The word reconciled there, apakatalasso in Greek. Reconciled. It means to be brought back into harmony. To be brought back into relationship with. To be once a stranger and now a friend. It's only used, this word reconciled, only a handful of times by the Apostle Paul. But each time he uses it, the context is quite clear. That this reconciliation, it is comprehensive and it is permanent. It is comprehensive and it is permanent. We could turn to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, where it says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. Paul speaking of a permanent transformation that's happened. That God has reconciled us to Christ and that we are a new creation, according to 2 Corinthians 5. But even an even better passage to look at is from Romans 5. Take a look at Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. It's on your outline. Paul says, much more than, having now been justified by Jesus' blood, we, have been, uh, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Here again, Paul makes a comparison. In, in verse 10, You're simply reading a restatement of verse 9. Verses 9 and 10 of of Romans 5 are are virtually parallel to one another. They're to be read in combination. Verse 10 is a restatement of verse 9. Verse 9, the same as verse 10. And as we read from Romans 5, 9 and 10, we see that Paul's making a comparison between those who are justified, verse 9... And those who are reconciled, verse 10. Paul says they're part and parcel of one another. If you're justified, then you're reconciled. If you're reconciled, then you're justified. How are we justified? Romans 5.1 answers that. We're justified by faith. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, if we're justified, we're reconciled. If we're reconciled, we're justified. How do we get justified? How do we get reconciled? Romans 5.1, we're justified by faith. Period. And if you're justified by faith in Christ, you have peace with God. Why do you have peace? Because you know where your eternal destiny lies. You can't have peace if you don't know where you're going. Peace would be fleeting. All the peace is spoken of in Scripture. It would be like reading something that's not true if you could not know that you were justified in God's sight. It would always be a potential peace. Paul and the rest of the writers of the Scriptures, along with Christ, would have to say that you might get peace. No, Paul says, having been justified, I have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus would put it, I say unto you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. John 6, 47. And so reconciliation with God, justification before God, they both come to us by faith in Christ. They're two sides of the same coin. Paul uses these words interchangeably in all of his writings. Now, pause for a second. Why are we talking about this again? Ah, yes. We're reading from Colossians 1. Not Romans 5. We're in Colossians 1. And in Colossians 1, we're reading about a warning that Paul's giving in verse 23. And we're trying to understand what is the nature and what is the extent of this warning. What does it mean and how far-reaching is it? And so what we're doing is we're starting to unpack this portion of the letter, verse by verse, and we've covered verse 21 in the early part of 22. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now Christ has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death. And in this reading, as we've studied the word reconciled, just briefly, we've just done a cursory study of the word, but we have found in comparison with Romans 5 and 2 Corinthians 5, we've come to learn that this word reconciled, it also can mean justified, that He's declared us just, God has, on account of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, and that that reconciliation is permanent. It gives us peace. Everyone who believes in Christ is justified. They're reconciled. They're given peace. Why? Because they're given everlasting life. Jesus would say elsewhere, we've passed from death to life. Romans, uh, John 5, I believe 24. So we have a conclusion now to make about this warning in verse 23. We have a conclusion to make about Colossians 1.23 and about this warning. It's on your outline. It's on the back of your outline. No, excuse me. It's on the front of your outline where it says clearly Paul uses the terms justified and reconciled interchangeably right below that. Here's our conclusion so far. Based on how Paul uses the word reconciled in Colossians 1, Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5, based on how Paul uses the word reconciled, we can be sure that the warning of verse 23 is not a warning about our eternal destiny. Based on how Paul uses the word reconciled, 
elsewhere in all of his letters, we can be sure that the warning of verse 23 is not a warning about heaven or hell. Though many, many, many read it that way. It's unfortunate that they do. Because they're not paying attention to the context. So we're, we're getting closer. We're, we're unraveling this, this warning. We're, we're finding out now what it is not. It is not a warning about our eternal destiny. Well, what is it? Let's unpack it further. And so we return to Paul's words, still seeking answers to the nature of this warning. Let's look again at verse 21, continuing a little bit deeper this time. Paul says in verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Here in verse 22, Paul emphasizes some of the foremost reasons why Jesus has reconciled us. It is true that Jesus lived and died and rose again so that you and I could have a second chance at heaven. That is undeniably true. But you know, that's not the only reason that Jesus did what He did. Verse 22 unpacks that greater hope that Jesus has for us. It says in verse 22 that Jesus also went to the cross to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach in His sight. Holy, blameless, above reproach. All three of those, by the way, in the Greek language, begin with the Greek letter Alpha, A. So Paul's drawing an alliteration here. He's, he's, he's being poetic in this statement, really. He says, Christ died that we might be holy, blameless, above reproach. Holy. Hagias in Greek. It means set apart. Blameless means exactly what it says in the English language. It means to be a person who has no fault before them. Above reproach. Maybe even a better uh, phrase might be free from accusation from another. That no one would accuse you any longer. That you'd be above reproach. Above the fray. You know, in one sense, all of these things, holiness, blameless, above reproach, in one sense, and on the one hand, all of those things are true of us now, in the here and now. And when we stand before Jesus, He will look upon us and He will see us as holy, blameless, and above reproach, not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done, and because He lives in us. And so that when God looks upon us, He sees His Son. 
We are holy, blameless, and above reproach in our nature because of our faith in Christ, because we've been reconciled, because we've been justified, because we've been transformed. We're a new creation, and God sees Christ in us. You are holy, blameless, and above reproach in your nature. And you will be declared that on the last day. But, that's not all that Paul is speaking about here. One of the commentators that I've been using, uh, Douglas Moo, gets to the heart of the matter on the backside of your outline. Doug Moo writes this. He says, quote, While celebrating the new status that believers enjoy, they're reconciled, Paul at the same time reminds us that this new status is not an end in itself, but has a further goal in view. What is that goal? That we who are already holy in status should become holy in reality. That we who are already holy in nature because of faith in Christ, because Christ lives in us, we have the Spirit of God in us, that we who are holy in nature, in status, might be holy in the world, in reality, in our present life. Are you perfect? I'm not. Do you still have sin? I do. Are we still entangled in the flesh? All of us are. So on the one hand, we are wholly blameless and above reproach in the sight of God who sees Christ in us. But on the other hand, we are still in the world. We're still in the process of sanctification. And all of this talk in Colossians 1.22, all of this talk from Paul of being presented as holy and blameless is, from my reading of it, very much contingent on what we do on earth. You see, not all Christians will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. All those who believe in Christ will enter the kingdom of God in heaven, but our measure of heavenly reward and inheritance will differ. On your outline, you might, write, you might put it this way. Eternal reconciliation is a gift of God given to us by grace through faith in Jesus. I'll say that again. Eternal reconciliation is a gift of God given to us by grace through faith in Jesus. But eternal rewards, on the next line, eternal rewards in heaven are earned by our good works and our perseverance in the faith. If that's a newer concept to you, uh, don't be alarmed. And it's unfortunate that you haven't been taught it because it's riddled throughout Scripture. There will be reward in heaven for those of you who have been especially faithful, especially steadfast, unmoved, keeping your hope in the gospel. And I've listed a number of scriptures there. Uh, thanks in part um, to Brad Doskasil, who's actually an elder at a church up in Long Beach. He's done an extensive study for which I'm very grateful and I'm uh, considering doing a, a deeper study on eternal rewards based on his, uh, his research. Eternal rewards is spoken of throughout scripture. But it's different than eternal reconciliation. You see, we're reconciled, we're justified by faith in Christ. That status is over and done with. When we believe, 
you are a son or daughter of God forever. But our sanctification, our reward, what is hoped for in the future, our eternal rewards in heaven, those are earned. Those are earned by our good works, by our perseverance, by being steadfast, being faithful. Knowing that each of us are at a different level of sanctification, we're not all equally holy. We're not all equally blameless in this life. And because of that knowledge, and it's self-evident knowledge, that, 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 that some are further down the road of sanctification, and others are, are maybe beginning their journey. And wherever you are, that's, that's fine. That, but that we're progressing is the key. Knowing that each of us are at a different level of sanctification, it should not surprise us at all that Paul begins to use the word if in verse 23. He gives a warning about this process of sanctification that we're all on. Let me unpack it in words that we might more readily understand. In essence, Paul is saying this, look, you've been justified. You've been reconciled by Jesus' death on the cross. He has paved the way for you to go to heaven by faith in Him, but that's not the only reason that He died for you. He also died for you because He wants you to follow in His footsteps. He also died for you because He wants you to live as He lived, to be holy, to be blameless, to be above reproach, free from accusation. But this goal of holiness, blamelessness, to be above reproach, this goal cannot be achieved unless, verse 23, you continue in the faith. This goal cannot be achieved unless you are grounded in Him steadfast, persevering, unmoved by anyone or anything that might lead you astray. Jesus has high hopes for you. He is your biggest fan. He believes in you more than anyone and He's on your side ready and willing to help. He has died for you, in verse 22, to present you wholly blameless and above reproach. That is His aim. Not just that you will walk through the pearly gates, but that you will walk through in fullness, with abundance. In fact, folks, uh, this high hope that Paul is alluding to here is actually even mentioned. It's embedded in verse 23 in the original Greek language. This particular phrase, if, the conditional statement that you read in verse 23, is what's called a first-class conditional statement in Greek. There are three conditional statements in Greek. Three different ways that you can understand the word if. In some cases, uh, it's the word if, and the writer is very, very doubtful that you will complete the condition. In another case, there's the word if, and the writer is unsure. The person speaking is unsure whether or not you will complete the condition. And then in a final way in which the word if can be understood in the Greek, there's the expression from the writer or from the speaker of confidence. That yes, they're saying if, 
but they have high hopes. They have great confidence that you will, in fact, rise up to this test. And guess what? In the original Greek of verse 23, it is a first-class conditional statement, which means Paul has every high hope and confidence that the Christians in Colossae will pass this test. He fully expects them to. And so we could translate verse 23 as, if you continue in the faith, as I fully expect you will. God has high hopes for you, friends. He is on your side. And the church is here to help you run the race, to rally you, to spur you. God has appointed leaders in the church, elders, pastors, teachers, to help you run well. And all of this, this goal, to be presented as holy, blameless, and above reproach, this aim of, of Christ, of Paul, of the church, Paul goes on to express this aim over and over and over again throughout the rest of the letter. On your outline there, in Colossians 1, 27b-28, Paul writes, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Why? That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That is to say, mature in Christ Jesus. That word present there is there in verse 28 as it was earlier. We saw in verse 22 in our text today. Paul's repeating the themes that his aim, his goal, is to present every person mature in Christ. Notice in verse 27, he doesn't say that I would present every person as a believer, as someone coming to faith, as someone who just became a Christian. No. Paul says, my goal is that you would not just come to faith, but that you would mature in your faith. That you would be made perfect, complete, whole. That's the sense of verse 27, 28 of Colossians 1, and also verse 22 in the warning of verse 23. But to be presented as holy, to be presented as fully mature, to be presented as perfect, to be presented before Christ on the last day as holy, blameless, and above reproach, you must, Paul says in verse 23, continue in the faith. You must be grounded, steadfast. You must be unmoved from the hope of the gospel. All of these conditions in verse 23. They are what full maturity is contingent upon. Your entrance into heaven is secure by faith in Jesus. But the fullness of that entrance, the, re the rewards that accompany it, are very much dependent upon you. And too many of us, even now, are being cheated of that reward. We're being cheated of that maturity we're being cheated of that inheritance because of our poor earthly conduct, because of our susceptibility to the world, because of our weak faith. Paul goes on to describe it as much. He says later on in the, in the next chapter, in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 9, look what he says. 
He's pleading with them now. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him, rooted, built up in Him, established in the faith. Wow, he's using similar terminology, is he not? As you've been taught, abounding with thanksgiving, beware, verse 8 of chapter 2, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And an even better, more, more obvious passage of this cheating, look down at verse 18 of chapter 2. He writes, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which you have not seen, vainly puffed up with your fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head who is Christ. Paul says, don't let anyone, anything cheat you. Not a false teacher, not a false worldly philosophy, not a temptation. He says, this is serious. I'm giving you a warning here. Our adversary, the devil, is trying to steal and rob. To steal from you your reward. He tempts us continually. He tempts us by means of the flesh. He tempts us with our eyes. He tempts us with our pride. And he tries to persuade us to settle, to settle for fleeting earthly pleasure and not rich heavenly reward. And certainly sin is usually pleasing in the present, isn't it? Sin is usually, almost always, pleasing in the moment, in the here and now, in this life. But the Bible teaches that a Christian who is uninterested in his or her sanctification, a person who is uninterested in their growth, in holiness, in perseverance, such a person, according to the Bible, will be ashamed on the last day. We read also on your outline from 1 John 2.28, Little children, John writes, abide in Christ, that when Christ appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. The text of 1 John is a warning text also, much like the one we read in Colossians 1.23. 1 John 2.28 is a real warning. And you and I must not minimize it. Both warnings sound the alarm. They're like two sides of the same coin. The warning in Colossians 1, verse 23, says that we must continue in the faith to be grounded. We must be steadfast. We must be unmoved if we're to stand before Jesus and show unto Him an earthly life that has been pleasing unto Him. A life that is holy and blameless and above reproach. And then 1 John 2.28 tells us that if we don't do these things, if we do not continue in the faith, if we're not grounded, if we're not steadfast, if we're not unmoved, if we don't abide in Him, then on that day, when our Lord returns, we will stand before Him, John writes, ashamed with very little to show Christ for the manner in which we lived. A husband stands ashamed before his wife when she catches him in a lie. A child stands ashamed before a parent when they're caught red-handed. Friends, if our life is a lie, 
or if much of it, is lived with, with nods and amens on Sunday, and yet with cursing and exploitation and backbiting and lust and drunkenness and fornication on every other day of the week, then what else will we feel when Jesus returns but shame? You might be thinking, but, but pastor, I thought heaven was a place of eternal joy. I thought there were no more tears in heaven, no more sorrow, no more pain in heaven. Isn't that, isn't that what heaven is? And to that we would rightly say, of course that's what heaven is. All those things are true of heaven. It is a place of eternal joy. It is a place where there is no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. And we can't wait for that day. But the shame that John speaks of, the warning of Colossians 1.23, these are real warnings. And the shame that, that John writes of, of whatever measure it might be, of whatever it might, of whatever measure it might feel, it is real. It's not fake. John's not writing allegorically, metaphorically, giving an example, giving a, well, it's kind of like this. No, he says, when Jesus returns, some of you will be ashamed. But knowing what we know about heaven, thank God, knowing what we know about the place we will go if we believe in Christ, we can rest assured that whatever that shame might look like, that it will be short-lived. It will be short-lived. God promises you that. But, these warning passages, they aren't in your Bibles for no reason. Quite the contrary. Such verses appear throughout Scripture to remind you to stay the course. To remind you that eternal reward is worth pursuing. To remind you that Jesus did not merely live and die and rise again that you might go to heaven, but that you might have it in abundance. John 10.10 says, The thief, the adversary, he comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. But I, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so I ask you on your outline below, in the section of application. This is for you personally. As I consider my present state of sanctification, that is to say, I believed in Jesus, I trust Him as my Savior, and I'm on the road of sanctification. I'm, I'm learning more about Him. I'm becoming more like Him. As I walk on that road, as I consider my present state of sanctification, what things, number one, what things ground me? Ground me. Give me a foundation. What things ground me and keep me steadfast in the faith? Would you resolve to prioritize these elements in your life? Paul would urge you to do so. What things ground me and keep me steadfast in the faith? Resolve to prioritize these elements in your life. And secondly, i got to think on the other side of the coin too. What things continually cheat me? 
of the high hopes Christ has for me? What things continually cheat me or rob me of the high hopes Christ has for me and resolve to avoid these things? Your heavenly reward will be worth it. Your heavenly reward will be worth it. As you consider these these elements of application, I want you to consider the people you interact with, the environments you find yourself in, be they home, work, when you're alone, when you're with certain groups, when you're in certain places. Consider the activities you do, be they of a physical nature, of a spiritual nature, of a waste of time, of something that's of great importance. Consider your sanctification this week, friends. What is grounding me? Well, if I'm going to take the warning of Colossians 1.23 seriously, then that means that I'm going to emphasize those things which, which firm up my faith. I'm going to surround myself with people, spiritual leaders, mentors, guides, who can bolster my faith. Where am I grounded? Am I grounded at church? I'm going to come here more. I'm going to be more faithful. Am I grounded when I'm alone with my Bible and the Lord alone? Then I'm going to prioritize. I'm going to make more time for that. What things ground you? And then on the flip side, what things rob you? Are you robbed when you hang out with that individual? That person that that every time you're with them, you get... uh, drained and you become tempted and you are led astray by them. Avoid them. What things rob you? What, what environments rob you? Or are you robbed when you're alone? Is it hard to be alone and holy? Then, then talk with your spouse about that and say, let's, let's be together. Let's spend more time together. I'd rather not be alone. I have trouble when I'm alone. Or, or is there an environment at work that is compromising? Find out where you are grounded and where you are susceptible. And Paul says, pay attention to these warnings. There will be some who will be ashamed on the last day. That shame might be very, very short-lived. I expect it will be. But the Scriptures would not mention it if it were not significant. So let's take these warnings seriously and let's consider how we might be holy, blameless, and above reproach by being grounded, steadfast, unmoved by the hope of the Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this time in Your Word. Lord, we never want to minimize these warning passages. We can so quickly uh, dismiss them, God, and say, well, I've got fire insurance, I'm going to heaven, and so I need not worry about anything else. Lord, let that be the furthest from our perspective. Christ is in us. The hope of glory is in us. Not that we might merely walk through the gates of heaven, but that we might walk through in abundance. So Lord Jesus, as You fill us, as Your Spirit fills us up, as we have the hope of glory in us, would You show us how to be grounded? Would You show us where we are susceptible? And would You help us? 
to be proactive in not being robbed of our reward, but of attaining to all the high hopes you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.